keep that open. Now it's called the book of Hebrews because it's written to Hebrews. That's who it's written to, which are Jewish Christians in this particular content, context. Uh, and this group of Christians, uh, as I said, their old ways of life were Judaism. And in the Roman Empire at the time, in the first century, to be a Jew and to be part of Judaism was, was a respected and reasonable way to live under the Roman Empire. Venerated and there were concessions made. The Romans were, had this part of Israel and they had other parts, conquered other parts of the world. And it was, they let them do their own thing. They did the temple sacrifices. They, did their, um, they had their own Pharisees and the ways of life. And that was all okay. But in the first century, if you had become a Christian, that changes things a little bit because this is a new thing. And it's a kind of a, cult, this is what it's been perceived by, by the Romans and by the Jews, and they don't really know what's going on, and they're kind of, it's not a very good thing for people who had been Jews, and now they become Christians, now they're pressured, persecuted, and it's not as easy to be a Christian in the first century, and particularly if you are a Jewish Christian, because you're tempted to go back to what you used to know. This is what the book is written for. It's written to these people who are tempted to go back to the old ways, the old ways of the temple, uh, the old ways of the Pharisees, the old ways of the way of Judaism. Now, what's the relevance for us? How does this work for us? Well, this morning, the topic, the main topic of what they're tempted to go back to, what we're talking about is, you can see it in the title of chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. It says, talks about a high priest. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer wants to say constantly, Jesus is better than the old way. Jesus is better. Don't go back. 
And the title this morning is Jesus, the Great High Priest, or Jesus the High Priest. This is our theme. Now, what is a priest? It's there in the passage. Have a look at verse 1. It says, The priest is appointed, taken from humanity, mankind, appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The priest is appointed in matters for God, but it's for the people to offer gifts and sacrifices. So the priest is like a bridge from mankind, from humans, to bridge people to God. That's what the priest is. Well, that's what the priest is supposed to do. Consequently, the priest is the one who knows how to deal with the people side of things and the God side of things. A bridge. Um, in the early 2000s, I worked as an engineer for a decade or so and I ended up in management. A lot of engineers kind of end up in management at some, some level. I was kind of in middle management by the time I got to a particular level. And... I was working in production. And so a lot of my job on the floor, I would be with trying to make as many widgets as possible. That was kind of the deal with production. Real exciting, but that was what you did. And the people who were on the production floor who ran the plant knew what was going on at the coalface and knew how to make as many widgets as possible and they understood that. And then, of course, I would go and do that and work on machines and try to get things going well. And then, of course, I'd have meetings with managers and other people who were upper management, plant managers and and managers who were above. And they'd have a different view, of course, of how the plant should run and what the culture should be and how that would work. And a lot of my job I spent trying to work with the people on the floor and production, trying to tell them how the managers want to get things done and how it's going to work. But then I'd also spend time working with the managers and saying, no, no, that's not how it works on the floor. <laughs> you actually got to take this into account as well. It's kind of like a priest, like a bridge. You think about the priest is kind of the middle manager of the Old Testament, but it's the middle manager between the people, representing the people, the needs of the people, and bridging to what God needs and the Godward side of things. So, that's what a priest is. Now, three little points on this priestly focus. We're going to look at the earthly priest, the heavenly priest, and why Jesus is the the earthly, heavenly priest, the great high priest. The earthly priest. Have a look at verses 1. What's an earthly priest like? Have a look at verse 1. Every priest is taken from humanity. It seems obvious. But the priest needs to become from humanity, the human side. But look at the reasons why. Have a look at verse 2. Why does this priest need to be earthly? Have a look at verse 2. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and those who are going astray. The priest understands those who are ignorant, who don't, don't know about God, and also those who are deliberately going astray. The priest is meant to connect with people. And look, notice it says there in that verse 2, they're clothed with weakness. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that everything they do is weak. It's just a picture. Being clothed with weakness is a picture of being human and frail, like everyone else. It's important that the priest is like the human. (laughs) In other words, they understand what it is to be weak and fallible, and not right with everything 
and they can connect with humanity and therefore they can represent the concerns of people to God properly because they understand what it is to be human. They can deal gently with those who are ignorant, sternly maybe with those who are going astray, clothed in weakness. And look at the next verse, verse 4. This is the earthly priest, the earthly priest that is weak, that's clothed with weakness. They do not take honour on themselves, but they're called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, who's Aaron? Aaron, is a, Aaron was a priest of the tribe of Levi, which is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were called, that tribe was called to be the priestly tribe. And the writer reminds them of this particular person and the priest, the earthly priest. But there's a problem with earthly priests and with this idea of a priest who can connect with humanity, who can identify with humanity, who is much like humanity. And it's a pretty obvious problem. But look, it's there actually in verse 3. Have a look. Because of this, this clothing in weakness, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. It's obvious, but... The writer is saying, do you see the the problem here with the priesthood thing? The priest understands humanity. The priest is human and the priest understands humanity very well. In fact, almost too well. The priest is human like you and makes mistakes and is sinful and they have to offer sins for the people as well. And so he's saying, don't turn back to this priestly issue. See, how can the priest stand in the sight of God? He must be clean also. How can they be a bridge to God? And this priestly priesthood that comes from the tribe of Levi that is connected to Aaron, um, they've got to make sacrifices before God. And they've got to make sacrifices that are at the right time of the day. They've got to make the right sacrifices. They have to be particular types of animals. They have to be done for particular types of sin. If you have this type of sin, it's this type of sacrifice. This type of sin is this other type of sacrifice. There's a book in the Old Testament called Leviticus and it goes on and on and on and on about all the different sacrifices and how they're supposed to be made. And you can have a look at that if you're really, you know, interested. Now in Exodus, at the end of Exodus, it goes on for eight chapters, eight chapters about where the sacrifice is meant to be made. And it talks about this temple and it talks about how the dimensions of the temple are meant to go and the exact dimensions of the temple and the curtains are be made out of this material and they're to be this colour and this table is meant to sit there and the dimensions of this table is meant to be this much and this table is meant to sit there from this, this much distance from this other table and here is all the other accessories that go on in the temple. What colour, what dimensions, how they should be spaced and it does that for eight chapters. And so we have the priest... It is taken from humanity, coming to the, to the place, the right place that has all the right dimensions, that is all arranged properly, coming with all of the right sacrifices at all of the right times with the appropriate sacrifices, depending on what, that, what is required. Why is it so complicated and has to be so specific and is so important? Because the temple is... And the sacrifice is just a reflection. It's just a shadow, I should say, not a reflection. It's a shadow of the reality of what is really required. 
So I'll say that again. So the temple with all its exact dimensions and everything else and all the right sacrifices and things that have to happen at the right time and the earthly priesthood of Levi and Aaron and the earthly priest, all of that is a shadow of the reality. Because remember in Psalm 51 we had God who was merciful. He knows God is merciful. But God who is the just judge. And so God must have sacrifice and it's not that we're all terrible people it's that God is God and he is glorious and holy and good and all of us need the bridge to God all of us do and here's the earthly if the earthly priest is going to, going to bring us there all the right sacrifices at the right time in the right place and, the, and this is how Judaism works this is how religion works And is it going to get us there? Because God is, the analogy is, God is like, uh, you're at the beach and you get a bit of sand in your eye. And you know how it's it's awful and you're trying to get it out. And it's awful and you get some water and you go down to the beach and you're trying to get water and you're trying to get out. It scratches and it hurts. And you get a little bit of sand out and it is the smallest thing. You can't even see it. And it doesn't matter how small it is, it really hurts. This is the God who we approach, who we, who we live before. This is the God who is holy and good and he can't stand any speck of sin. It's not, it doesn't matter how much it is. And this is why we have the sacrifices that go on for a whole chapter of Leviticus that go on in all different places. And we have the temple that has to be the right dimensions in all the different places. We have the earthly priesthood of, of Levi and Aaron. But what is all of that of all of that about and what is that all pointing to? Well, the second part is the heavenly priest. Have a look at verse, verses 5 and 6. Today you are my son. You are a priest forever like this guy Melchizedek. What is this Melchizedek thing going on about? He will expand on this in chapter 7. But all you need to know is basically they think of Melchizedek as this special priest. He turns up in the Old Testament and he kind of disappears very quickly. Turns up and disappears. And he seems to be more important than Abraham. Now the point is Levi and Aaron come from Abraham and Melchizedek is even more important. He's before Abraham. And so they think this Melchizedek is some heavenly priest. But the writer is saying, Jesus, Jesus is the real priest. Jesus is the Melchizedek. Jesus is the heavenly priest. What's the significance of that? Have a look at verse 14. I know we didn't read it out, but that's where the the high priest bit starts. It says, therefore, chapter 4, verse 14. Notice there it says, he has passed through the heavens. Notice it says they're heavens. Into the very presence of God. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying the priest thing, this is the one who goes into the presence of God, into the glorious presence of God, right up to the centre of his throne, right up to the mercy seat. All other priests go into different parts. some, Some priests can hang out here. Some priests have another section out there. There's another priest that can go inside the so-called sanctuary. Then there's another priest that can go into the Holy of Holies only once a year. 
This is saying Jesus goes right into the presence of the Father. Right up into the presence of the Father, to his throne. And it says in verse 6 that Jesus is the priest forever. That's what the Melchizedek thing is. He's the priest forever. It essentially means the earthly priest dies and passes away and he's weak. But this one lives and is interceding forever. And he is the perfect representation of humans to God. For he was clothed in weakness. Jesus was clothed in weakness. Became man a little lower than the angels. Understands our weakness in every way. Able to connect with us in every way. Yet he can go right into the very presence of God. And able to offer the full sacrifice of Jesus himself. The perfect bridge. And so we talked about the speck of thing. The holiness of God how we can't stand before him, but Jesus is the perfect priest, the perfect bridge, the perfect connection to God. And so the Hebrews are encouraged, don't go back. <laughs> don't turn back to rules and rituals and, and, and rites. Jesus is the one who can represent you fully before God. In Jesus, he understands everything we've gone through. He sacrifices himself but it's not just once. He's there. He's the priest forever. But the thing is, and this is the crux of it all, this is the, the, the important part of it all, why is Jesus deserving to be the high priest? Why is he, why is he allowed to go into the presence of God and offer the sacrifice for us? Why can we now know God and know God, like David says in Psalm 51, knows God is faithful, kind of knows God is faithful, but doesn't really know it, wants to know it, and know, but knows God is God a, just, a God of justice. Why can we know the truth about that where we've seen it in Jesus and we know about his sacrifice? Why can Jesus wipe out our sins and actually help us to be people that are clean before God. Have a look at verses 7 to 8. During Jesus' earthly life, this is the significant bit, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Don't you see here that Jesus, it's saying Jesus went down to the very depths of human experience and life. Although he was the son, look at that, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus didn't, he didn't take the shortcut, right? When he was in the desert, he refused to take the bread and the shortcut, even though he was hungry, right? He, he, when he was on the mountain, he refused to take the power that the devil said you can have. He didn't take the shortcut. And then the end of his life, it all adds up, all that adds up to the end of his life in verse 7, where it's, you know what it's talking about. He offered prayers and appeals with cries and groans. And what's he doing? He's in the garden. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. And it says there he was heard. Was he though? <laughs> 
He's in the garden. And what happens? How does that story go? Yet not my will, but yours, he says. And the father turns his face away. And it says there in verse, verse 8, it says he, was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. The point is that Jesus, this is why Jesus is the one who stands now before God to give the full and perfect sacrifice because his whole life he listened to God all of the way and he was obedient and he was the perfect human and he lived that life in place of ours and he always did that and took him all the way to the cross where he's groaning. And this is a real groan. He's not, there's no, he's experiencing that separation and he's saying, God, please, why? And how's another path? Surely there's another way. And it says there he was made perfect. When we hear perfect, we think in Greek terms, material terms, perfect equals 100%. 99.9% is not perfect. That's what it, it's not saying that. Perfect means in this sense, it's meaning complete. He became fully, fully complete in terms of his purpose. And so what this means is, it means we don't listen to God. We want to go our own way, right? And we throw a tanty. We throw a tanty when God doesn't give us what we want in life. It's not going the way we want it to. But Jesus was perfected. And notice it says there, he became the source of eternal life. He's the priest who went all the way down into the depth of the reality of our experience. He knows what we're going through and what it is that's happening. And he came through the other side and he's now at the right hand of God. He's given his perfect life. So we can trust Jesus. I'll give you this little story about him knowing us. I know at times it feels like he doesn't know what we're going through right now. He mustn't, but it says there he was tempted in every way. And he understands our experience in every way. Listen to this. In the, I know it's a bit old now, but the movie Good Will Hunting. Um, Robin Williams is the elder, elder gentleman, and he's trying to counsel this young man, Will, who is brilliant. He knows a lot of stuff. He's amazing. Um, but he says this. Robin Williams, the older guy, says this to the younger guy who's brilliant. He says, if I ask you about art... You could probably give me a lot of details on all the art books. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him, his life works, his political aspirations, the whole works, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it, what it smells like to be in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there and looked up at the ceiling. You don't know, you don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you have loved something more than you loved yourself. You're an orphan. He's talking, he talks to Will, because Will is in the, in the movie as an orphan. You're an orphan, but do you think I know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how, about how you feel about who you are, about your identity and so on, because I read Oliver Twist? Of course not. And of course he's talking about a difference between knowing stuff, knowing truth, and experiencing it. And the point is, Jesus in this story, this picture of Jesus headed toward the garden with loud cries and tears, and he knows what it's like for God to be refusing you. He knows what it's like. 
as you're going through life and you've got this path, you're going through this way and it's not working out. And at the moment you're going, oh God, how come you're taking me down this way? Jesus knows, not just as an abstract thing, he understands. And that's why he can also be the source of salvation because he, he went through the other side and now he lives and he intercedes for us. And so Jesus is the earthly, he knows us, earthly, heavenly priest. His perfect sacrifice before God. He's the one that we listen to and we trust and we can trust him. And he's the great high priest, the great bridge. And what does this mean as we finish? I think just maybe a couple of things about Suffering in particular, let me just say two things. The first thing is, whatever God's taking you through at the moment, uh, whatever path you're going down, even if there's some suffering there, sometimes that's part of the path that God wants you to go. Why do I say that? You notice in verse, I think it was five or six, it said, Although, even though Jesus was the son, he learned completion through obedience. What it's saying is, if God refused his son and his son was being refined through that, some, we're not going to escape the path of suffering or the path of going a particular, of God putting us down a particular road. It means if Jesus was refused with loud cries and tears and prayers, sometimes we're going to be. Do you know the other side of that? That, that path of sometimes suffering, it also, the other side of it is, God's any suffering that we're going through, it's not punishment. It's not that God is trying to, you know, is trying to really punish us. And you know why we know this? Because Jesus is in the heavens and he has done the sacrifice. It's wrong for God and God doesn't exact revenge or take the other, the, the, the penalty's being paid. He doesn't do it twice. And so if there's something you're going through and there's some suffering, it's not that God's punishing you. It's not that he's, you know, trying to, trying to smash you or teach you some sort of story. It's not, it's not that. It's not punishment. Can't be because Jesus, Jesus has taken the punishment. He's in the heavens. He's come before God. His sacrifice is good. And God says it is finished. But God is just perhaps saying, look, hang on, keep hanging on, keep trusting me. You can trust me through this. You can lean on me. And I've shown you how much I love you because I, I refused my son. I didn't listen to him. And in the end, I did, did that so that you could become children of God. 
we can trust Jesus. He knows us. He's gone through it. He was refused so that we could be heard. And now we are the ones who can be with the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the great bridge. That where else, again, as Peter says, where else, as people left and wanted to go somewhere else, he said, where else can I go but you, who has the source of eternal life? Uh, Help us, we ask, Father, to turn to you this week, to depend on you, to cry out to you if need be, Help us to tread the paths that you have given us and embolden us and strengthen us and remind us that you're not punishing us, but you love us. Help us cling to you this week in Jesus' name.